You're listening to the season finale of Cover Up, Ministry of Secrets. A quick warning before we begin. This episode contains graphic descriptions of a dead body. When we met Lionel Crab expert Anne Bevan in Portsmouth, she pointed out all sorts of places connected with Crab. The Sallyport Hotel, the pub where he observed the Soviet ships, the docks and the harbour front. But she said there's one place we really ought to check out, a secret base that's not accessible by car or by foot, because there's a ton of security surrounding it. It's called Fort Moncton, just beyond Portsmouth Harbour, and it's an old military fort that dates from Tudor times. But Fort Moncton is much more than an old fort. According to Anne Bevan, it's a top-secret intelligence base. Anne tells us we can get a good view of Fort Moncton from the sea. So my producer Sarah and I are taking a boat trip there with a local guy called Captain Kevin. Hi, hello. I'm Giles. Hello. Very pleased to meet you. Sarah. Hello. Nice to meet you. Let's get you some life jackets. Brilliant. Captain Kevin's going to take us out through Portsmouth Harbour, beyond the harbour mouth, because there on a windswept bit of coast is Fort Moncton that secret base, and we're going to get as close as we can. QHM, onboard rib, gun wharf to ballast, please, sir, over. Captain Kevin's taking us out in an eight-metre rib, a rigid inflatable boat with a sleek hull and a massive engine. Copy, sir, have a visual, thank you. We go quite slowly while we're still in the harbour, because it's full of warships and pleasure boats. As soon as we've passed the harbour mouth, Captain Kevin hits the gas and the speedboat thrusts forward, smashing through the waves. And then, just a few minutes later, he shuts down the engine. So, Sarah, we've made it to Fort Moncton. It was quite fast, wasn't it? Oh, it was very, very <laughs> fast. We hit now. 30 or 31 knots just then, and it did feel quite fast. Captain Kevin swings the boat around, and there, right in front of us, is the mysterious military base, Fort Moncton. We're about, what, 20 metres, 30 metres from the shore here? What do you think, Kevin? Probably more than that. More than I'd that. say we're, we're 50, 60 metres off. And it's a, a grey, rather imposing, uh, dreary-looking sort of barrack-style building. So I asked Kevin about the security surrounding the place. It's significant. There's massive perimeter wire fencing, double, double layer. If you look to your left, yep. you can see that all topped with razor wire bristling with security cameras. Virtually every corner, every surface has a security camera. And how close could we get now? Is this a, is we, this a limit? We, we, we shouldn't be any closer than this, really. Right. 50 metres is about as close as we should be. And they'll be very curious about what we're doing here anyway. Mm. If you notice, there's a little grey tower yep. over here. That's manned. There's an observation panel up to the front. So that'll be manned. So they'll be watching us, watching them. And do we know actually what takes place in this place? 
Um, not officially, no, we don't. No. <laughs> There's lots of speculation. Mm. Local speculation suggests it's MI5 or MI6. Um, we don't actually know 100%. I push him for a bit more, because if it's MI6, it could have a bearing on the story of Lionel Crabbe. You know, Rumour has it, it's a training establishment. I have no idea. I've never been in there. Captain Kevin tells me it's also a listening station. If you look at all the, the masts, and, and apart from the cameras, there seems to be a lot of um, electronic masts and signalling and radio equipment on top of that grey tower. So uh, clearly there's significant communication with the outside world from there. But... It looks like one great listening, sort of bugging machine, you know, uh, tracking everything that's going on. Fort Moncton. It's strange. Pretty much all that Sarah and I know about the place is what we've been told by Anne Bevan. The only people I have met who were associated with Fort Moncton are local people who worked for MI6, who were in the audience of lectures that I have given. She hints that Fort Moncton played a role in the disappearance of Lionel Crabbe, that she and John Bevan have been told things by those in the know. But when I ask for more, she clams up. All I know is that you can't get away with anything if you go into Fort Moncton, you will be discovered. And given that we're pretty certain that MI6 spymaster Nicholas Elliott planned Crabbe's final dive, and we know Fort Moncton is also associated with MI6, I'm wondering if that secret base played some sort of role in the cover-up once everything went horribly wrong. I'm Giles Milton, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up Season 1, Ministry of Secrets. Episode 8, And Then We Met Mary. Springtime is all about fresh air, fresh starts, and freshly clean homes. And it's the perfect time to give a fresh look at Simply Safe Home Security. The home security system many of the most anxious people I know recommend. Here's why people love it. Trusted by experts, Simply Safe was named Best Home Security System for 2024 by US News and World Report. And Newsweek awarded it Best Customer Service in Home Security. The system blankets your whole home in protection. It has sensors to detect break-ins, fires, floods, and more plus a variety of indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch over your property day and night. It's backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day, so you get fast emergency response and dispatch when you need it most. Simply Safe has given many of our listeners real peace of mind. I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for fast protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash coverup. That's simplysafe.com slash coverup. There's no safe like Simply Safe. In episode six, we heard how Lionel Crabbe's rotting corpse was pulled out of Chichester Harbour, how it still had a few recognisable features, features that enabled our forensic pathologist, Dr Richard Shepherd, to conclude that it was indeed Lionel Crabbe. But how did it get to Chichester Harbour? Officially, Crabbe died in Stokes Bay, but that's miles along the coast from Chichester, and so is Portsmouth Harbour, where Crabbe was last seen alive. 
which begs the question, could his corpse have drifted such a great distance? Sarah and I call up Professor Carolyn Roberts, forensic hydrologist. She's the country's leading expert on how corpses move in water. She's helped the police solve countless crimes, often murders, where the body's been dumped in the sea. I always describe it as being a bit like Sudoku. You've got Lots of bits of evidence. Professor later. Roberts is quite a character. Short grey hair, big glasses, a warm, toothy smile. And on the day we meet, she's wearing an aquatic-themed jacket with crabs and sea creatures on the sleeves. She's also great fun discussing axe-wielding murderers with the same casual tone she might use when having a catch-up with an old friend. A person was found cut up into pieces in the canal. There were lots of pieces of this body, but no head. So I tell her about Lionel Crabb, how we've managed to identify the corpse, how we now want to know how it got to Chichester Harbour. What is likely to have happened to his body in the sort of couple of hours after he has died in the water? Well, my assumption is that he would sink because he's got oxygen cylinders and weights probably and breathing apparatus uh, attached to him. Um, and so I think he would sink to the bottom quite, uh, maybe not rapidly, but fairly quickly. A body that's dead in the water starts to decompose. So the rate at which it decomposes depends on the water temperature and the setting. So over a period of, let's say, two, three, four weeks, up to six weeks, in typical English water temperatures, the body starts to decay and gas starts to build up. And then, gruesomely, gas will fill up in the thorax, the chest cavity and the abdomen, and it will start to float. And once it's buoyant, it can move. But Crab, he's an unusual case because he's in a wetsuit and this has two effects. One, it would slow the rate of decomposition, but conversely, it would also tend to trap the gas. It's potentially quite important because that's what's going to determine how buoyant the body is in the, in the sea. She says that unless Crab's oxygen cylinders came off soon after he died, he'd have been too heavy to start drifting he'd have stayed put. But those cylinders were strapped on with leather belts. It's hard to see how the straps holding cylinders on could have rotted through in six weeks before the body had started to rot. Professor Roberts says timing's the key to everything, because after six weeks, the body starts to disintegrate, the gas escapes, and buoyancy is lost. So it gets holes in it, basically, and the gas goes, and it tends to fall back to the the bed again. So you've only got a narrow window. A very narrow window. For the body to move, that is. If Crab's gas-filled corpse was to be carried off by the tides, he'd have to have lost those oxygen cylinders very soon after he died. If you look at the deep water channel here on this yeah, diagram... So this Professor Roberts has come armed with charts of the seabed around Portsmouth and Stokes Bay. I'm just drawing it in for you. It's going to go down there. Right. They mark currents and trenches and tides. And she's also brought maps showing the flow of seawater and tables with the speed and direction of the currents. And as she studies them, she's frowning, because nothing quite adds up. 
sometimes bodies roll along the seabed and that's why then one would look at the water velocities, the typical water velocities. But to me, they don't look high enough to have done that. She's trying to work out if Crabbe's body could have drifted from Stokes Bay to Chichester or from Portsmouth to Chichester. But as she studies the map, there's something troubling her. The vast majority of the water flows down in this sort of direction, mm -hmm. down here. The water, it's flowing southeast, and that's away from Chichester Harbour. So the flows that actually go fully east... Directly towards direct, Chichester. ...quite small and quite low velocity. So small and low that they couldn't have dragged a body into Chichester Harbour. And Professor Roberts says there's another problem, because although some seawater flows into the harbour, there's also river water flowing out of the harbour. Because the, you know, the rivers coming into Chichester Harbour don't stop at any point, they keep flowing. So Basically, the currents preventing Crab's body from entering the harbour are way more powerful than the currents that could carry it in. She points out the problems on a nautical map. That's quite That's a journey, right. isn't it's it? It's quite a journey, and I think it's extremely unlikely. It's extremely unlikely. Let's pause for a moment, because the implications of what she's telling me are enormous, and I want to get it clear in my head. So can you see any circumstances under which Commander Crabbe's body was moved by the tides from Portsmouth Harbour to Chichester Harbour? Well, I'd have, to, I'd have to hedge my bets and say, to me, it's a very, very remote possibility. So if Lionel Crabbe's body could not have been washed into Chichester Harbour, either from Portsmouth or from Stokes Bay, then how on earth did it get there? Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. In our previous episode, we heard from Lord Mountbatten biographer Andrew Lowney, the one with the curly hair and kindly smile. He told us how Mountbatten almost certainly gave the order for Lionel Crabbe's dive, ordered a rogue MI6 operation. And if you think about it, that's shocking. Because Mountbatten was doing this behind the back of the young Queen Elizabeth, the very person he was supposed to be helping an inexperienced monarch still in her 20s who loved her beloved Dickie, trusted him to the ends of the earth. But what's even more shocking 
is that he removed all evidence linking him to Crabbe's secret dive. So did he act alone? I think it's a very important issue about academic freedom, access to archives. Andrew Lowney is not just a biographer. He's also a crusader, fought for years to get Mountbatten's papers made public. Papers bought with taxpayers' money, then deliberately kept secret by the Cabinet Office. So they just played fast and loose with everything. Uh, Lowney knows this world inside out. I've got stuff going back two or three years, which has just been pushed down the road by them. And that they have other tricks. Andrew Lowney. He's 100% British establishment, studied at Cambridge, frequents those gentlemen's clubs in Pall Mall, the ones we've heard so much about. He lives near the Cabinet Office in London. So when he took them to court for blocking the Mountbatten papers, he was taking on his neighbour. So, um, you know, it has been a very isolating experience, apart from a very expensive one. So I ask him about the rumours that Sarah and I have been hearing, that there's a secret inner circle operating in the shadows of Whitehall, a sort of ministry of secrets. Turns out, Lowney's picked up the same rumours from his establishment friends. In the corridors of power, he says, they even have their own name. They're known as the Weeders. It sounds almost comical, but the Weeders are no joke. Their job is to weed out documents that are sensitive and embarrassing and make sure they remain secret forever. And none of the experts we've spoken to in the making of this podcast, like former Whitehall correspondent Sonia Purnell and Guardian investigative reporter Rob Evans, none of them has ever met a weeder. They have no idea who they are. And nor does Andrew Lowney. We don't know, because we don't know who the weeders are. And they don't trust anyone from outside, even if, you know, they were security vetted. Lowney has a few theories. I suspect they're people, they're people with very high security clearance, so they will have had very sensitive jobs, they will be known to be trusted. They're probably mainly chaps who know about doing the right thing. And some of it, Lowney thinks, is reasonably harmless. So if their chum has been caught, you know, dressed up in woman's clothes somewhere, and there's a story about that, that's one of the things that probably get weeded. But not all of their work is so harmless. They're also there to cover up mistakes, cock-ups, and things that are illegal. And their word, their say is final. Yep. There's no way of, of challenging it, and, and there's no way of challenging the reasons. Lowney's very close to this establishment world, yet he has no idea how to meet a weeder. You know, who knows, they probably have a weeders club where they all go and, you know, drink cocktails in the evening afterwards. Of course, they're under control because they're pretty much all, I would think, getting government pensions. So there's quite a lot of control over them, and um, it's a nice way of keeping in with, with the office. Uh, uh, it's a nice retirement job, but extra cash, and meeting your, your mates. And that was almost that. We finished our chat with Lowney, thanked him for his time, but he emailed me a week or so later, said he'd got some exciting news. So I jump on a Zoom and he tells me a story. 
The day after we met, I ran in at a 60th birthday party to someone I hadn't seen since Cambridge. But it was not any old party. It was at one of those gentlemen's clubs in Pall Mall, the Oxford and Cambridge Club, exclusive and elite. It was someone I hadn't seen for 40 years who had joined the Foreign Office actually having had a career elsewhere. I mean, he's, he's quite a conventional figure. Uh, and we got chatting and he, he, I could tell... And this person, who Lowney prefers not to name, let slip in the course of their conversation that he... Was a weeder. A weeder? Lowney was astonished. After all these years, someone he knew was actually confessing to being a weeder. And this is amazing because no one ever confesses to being a weeder. And it brings us closer than ever to this secret network at the heart of Whitehall. And Lowney, he immediately thought of our podcast. And so without saying what I was up to, I asked him about his job. At first, the friend revealed very little, but then... Several hours in and several bottles of wine in, uh, he began to be a little bit more open uh, about his work. He opened up because of the wine and because they'd been to the same university and were members of the same elite club. So I was able to press him, but it took me a long time to, to even get the most basic information out of him. And this was someone I knew I'd known quite well. So Lowney keeps topping up his friend's wine glass, asks a few more questions, and as he does so, he senses a change coming over his friend. He began to clam up. He was absolutely adamant that he wouldn't talk about it. So I ask Lowney, did he mention us to this weeder and our quest to find the truth about Lionel Crabbe? I did, yes, I did, and I picked my moment. I think I said I'd just done a programme on this and funnily enough, they were looking for a weeder. Would he be prepared to talk to them? Uh, and he said, absolutely not. Um, and that was in some ways when the whole thing began to shut down. These weeders, they're unelected, they're unaccountable, they're completely unknown. And yet they alone decide what we get to know and see. But it's worse than that. Lowney tells me the weeders are former Whitehall insiders, diplomats, civil servants, that weed out documents about events that happened on their watch. The people who seem to be doing this weeding are just any diplomat who wants to take early retirement and, um, you know, is sent in there with a, with a tick box of what they need to do. And these are people, in a sense, marking their own homework. And that means that they're not only protecting themselves, but also covering up for their friends, implicated in scandals. The writer George Orwell wrote in his novel 1984 that who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. That who, it's the weeders. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then unheard of secret organisation called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. 
Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. At the end of the last episode, we heard Lionel Crab expert Anne Bevan say there are certain things she can't tell us. Because I can't let you broadcast it. So you have to turn that off when I tell you that. She can't name people while they're still alive, people who've told her sensitive things. Because many of those interviewed by John, her late husband, had signed the Official Secrets Act, and he'd sworn never to reveal what they'd said. But John's no longer alive, and nor are those he interviewed. And so much of this story is now firmly in the past. So I give Anne another call, and she tells me she's been thinking things over, come to a big decision. She's decided to give all John's files to a library so his lifetime's work will be preserved. When John died, I I asked the Historical Diving Society to come and look at all his papers and please sort out what he thought would be valuable. And And I can't help feeling that this is Anne's emotional farewell to a whole chapter of her life. She's seeking, perhaps, some sort of closure. She suggests Sarah and I pop down to see her again because she's decided to share with us all those years of husband and wife sleuthing. And this time, she's happy to talk on the record. Where does the Lionel Crabb story really begin? OK, he was working in London at the time for a man called Maitland Pennell, who'd like to come down and to Portsmouth. He was to approached by investigation. Burns on the Russian when they arrived in Portsmouth they booked into the Sally Port Hotel and they were supposed to have had a meeting immediately and after that meeting Crowe went to a pub he walked to the Sally Port Hotel by this time they would have had passes to get into the area and then passes to get onto the a story it's extraordinary and a million miles away from what Sarah and I had been expecting But before I get into all that, we first need to run through the sad truth of Lionel Crabbe's final hours. On Wednesday the 18th of April, 1956, Crabbe checked into the Sallyport Hotel with his CIA handler, Bernard Smith. And then he had a few pints with his old Navy mates. And those pints became a binge. And Crabbe was deliriously happy for the first time in years. But also deliriously drunk. And he was still in a bad way at dawn the next day when he was to make his secret dive. There's no way he could have been sober, completely sober by that stage. He would have still been hung over, probably even still drunk. Drunk when he got into the water, drunk when he dived under the Soviet ships. And then? We do not know what happened to him after that, except that he was seen surfacing between the two Russian cruisers. And to surface, he was in big trouble. A crashing hangover, sick, he was in a very bad place. He may have passed out. If there was carbon dioxide buildup in his equipment, that could have contributed to him passing out. 
If you ask me what did happen to Lionel Crabbe on that fateful day, I would say that he drowned. Drowned while drunk. And I can't help feeling a bit let down by this part of her story. Because over the last few years, I've chased tales of defection, of that underwater stabbing, and Crab being sighted in Moscow. And what Anne's saying, it's a lot less colourful. But then I notice she's smiling, because she knows that Crab's drowning. It's really only the beginning of the affair. And then, of course, the whole story starts. And it really does, because Anne's about to reveal something extraordinary. You've got to picture the scene. It's completely dark, and Lionel Crabbe's drowned body's been drifting in the murky waters for hours. The day's come and gone, and now it's night again. But his body, now, it's no longer drifting. It's got snagged, snagged under one of the harbour jetties. Anything heavy on the seabed is dragged in towards the sides of the harbour as the water eddies on its way out. And South Railway Jetty, which was where he was doing his investigations, is notorious for collecting debris that is coming out of Portsmouth Harbour. By now, Whitehall's been informed that Lionel Crabbe's gone missing, and so have the Royal Navy's Portsmouth-based divers. We do know that after he, the day after he went missing, that divers were sent out to look for his body. She knows because she's been told. And what she's saying, it's quite a revelation. The Royal Navy launched a secret diving operation to recover Crab's corpse. And these guys, these divers, they know their stuff. They know how the South Railway jetty sucks in debris. And we know that they would have, the first place they would have investigated would have been there, because that's the most likely place for something to have got entangled. And one of those divers, he found Crab's corpse. And he managed to untangle it. But getting a corpse out of the water, it's not easy. And then they would have had to drag a body along the seabed back to somewhere where they could have recovered it, pulled it ashore. And then, wouldn't he have been seen? Anne says no. There is so much security around Portsmouth Harbour because it's a working dockyard. So it would have been very easy to have kept people away. Now, you might be thinking that the Royal Navy mission to find Crab's corpse, it was so that he could be buried. But it wasn't. Anne tells me his body was transferred to a boat, then ferried across the harbour to Fort Moncton, that top-secret base. It would have been very easy for them to have done that and taken the body back to Fort Moncton unseen. And it would have been unseen. Because Sarah and I took a boat out to Fort Moncton, and you can't get near the place. It's far from the public gaze. You could do anything there. Everyone Anne and John interviewed, people who know the secret world inside out, said Crab's corpse was held there for months. 
But why? Because MI6 had a plan for what to do with that corpse, but only when the time was right. In order to make it credible that it was Crabbe's body, it had to be a body that had been immersed in water since the day that he went missing. So, she says, they held it underwater, though she doesn't know the precise details. It had to have been genuinely in the sea and suffered the conditions that it would have suffered under 15 months of being submerged. I think it probably would have been a cage underwater somewhere along the seafront there. But why would MI6 wait for months before releasing the body? Because they need the story to die down. They need Khrushchev to sail back to Russia. They need the press to lose interest. But they know the story hasn't gone away. They know it's going to resurface sooner or later, come back to haunt them, show them up as a bunch of amateurs. So the discovery of Crab's corpse, they hope it will shut down the story forever because they said all along that he drowned while doing regular underwater tests. And what could be more natural for his drowned body to be eventually washed up somewhere along that stretch of coast? So they get those Fort Moncton guys to dump the corpse in Chichester Harbour. It's the ideal place, because the local fishermen use huge catch-all dragnets to fish there. Everything gets picked up so they know it'll be found miles from their rogue operation in Portsmouth Harbour. But even here, they screw up. As Dr Richard Shepherd told us in episode six, sea creatures would inevitably get into the gap between Crab's wetsuit and separate rubber hood and gloves and eat the exposed flesh. So by the time the body got discovered, it's headless and handless. That's the essence of Anne Bevan's story, and it sounds crazy. But when she talked it over with a retired MI6 agent, he said... I wasn't allowed to talk about it until recently, but I was a member of MI6 at the time, and I can tell you that that is exactly what we would have done. And this is where Anne Bevan's story comes to an end, or almost at an end. Because a couple of days later, she emails me, tells me she's been sorting through the last of John's files, notebooks and stuff, and she stumbled across an old scrap of paper with a name and a phone number. It's one of John's contacts, Mary Julie, born 1925. Anne says she vaguely remembers John mentioning this Mary Julie how she had a story to tell. But for some reason, she didn't want it included in John's book. So I call that phone number, exchange a few words. And though Sarah and I are in the middle of editing our podcast, we've recorded most of it, that phone call with Mary, it changes everything. So we drop what we're doing and drive down to see her. And that's what brings us to a small bungalow just a few miles from Portsmouth. It's the home of 97-year-old Mary Julie. 
well, it was a fascinating story. It was when the Russian ships were in the harbour, isn't it? And Mary is sprightly, alert, sharp as they come. She's got bleach-white hair, all wavy, and has wire-rimmed glasses, and she's wearing a bright pink cardigan. And she gives a great big smile as I take a picture of her. Mary still lives in her own home, cooks for herself. She's in amazing form and remembers the past like it was yesterday. So we arrived here in 1948. There was no married quarters. In Back then, cities. Mary was in the prime of life, married to a Royal Navy Admiral, steeped in Navy tradition. And among her Navy friends were a couple called Commander Barry Dodd and his wife, Brenda. This Commander Barry Dodd, at the time of the Lionel Crab affair, he was in charge of Fort Moncton. And Mary says he was quite the mystery figure. You know, an unusual chaplain. He, he was not tall, he was very muscular and fit. I never saw him in uniform. I think he was a bit of a Sask SAS character because he would disappear and come back a week, few weeks later looking really tanned and say nothing. And, Commander Dodd did special operations, undercover stuff secret stuff. And the key thing is this. Commander Dodd and his wife Brenda lived inside Fort Moncton, inside that secret compound. And this made Brenda very unusual, because she was the only Navy wife who got to see all the goings-on, things that even Mary herself never got to see. I've always looked at it with uh, interest and amazement. No, we knew that they were goings on, put it on like that. But Brenda, she's on the inside. And one day in April 1956, she was to see something that was very secret and would haunt her for the rest of her life. A few years back, Brenda was ill, dying and she had a dark secret she didn't want to take to her grave. She needed to share it with someone she could trust, because up to this point, she'd done what any good Navy wife would do. She'd never said anything for years when it was all hush-hush. But now, she's got very little time left. She really wanted to tell the story by the time, so I was just there listening to her, do you think she wanted to get it off her chest, as it were? Yes, I, I think she definitely... I've holded this long enough and I think I can say it now. It was the feeling that I, I got. And she wanted to tell it to Mary Julie. It had to be Mary Julie, because they're both Navy wives, both from that same world, both used to keeping their husbands' secrets. It was an impressive story. It was, you know, r really, I mean, she'd been involved with things like like this. And I just listened to her telling her story. Well, as everyone says these days, I said, wow. So let me guide you through exactly what Brenda told Mary. It's the third week of April, 1956. We don't know the exact date, but it's likely to have been the 21st or 22nd, a Saturday or Sunday. And Brenda's at home in Fort Moncton, and it's just another day, and she's about to pop out to get a few things. She reaches for her handbag, makes sure she's got her keys, 
and puts on a jacket because there's a bit of a nip in the air. And then she opens the front door, steps outside. She was coming out of the quarter that she lived in, in Moncton. Out of her lodgings. But remember, these lodgings, they're inside the secret Fort Moncton compound. And then suddenly, there's a commotion. Lots of officers and... Told to go back in, not to see anything. Something was happening that she wasn't to see. But what? What could be so secret? Brenda's curious. Brenda's always been curious. And she can't help but take a peek. And what she saw next, it was horrific. She swore that she saw the body of Lionel Crabbe being brought in. Dead, swollen from being underwater, still dripping and waxy pale. And at this point, with its head and hands still intact, because it's only been in the water for a few days. She said for certain that it was Lionel Crab. And it was Lionel Crab. His body, his corpse, had been found. So what happened next? Was Crab's body held in an underwater cage, as Anne Bevan believes? Was it released into Chichester Harbour? We'll never know for sure until that embargoed Lionel Crab file is finally released by the Weeders. But what we do know for sure is that the British government was forced to issue a humiliating and grovelling apology to the Soviet government. An apology for plotting a spying mission while the Soviet ships were in Portsmouth Harbour. But what we also know is that our experts have reached their own conclusions that it was Lord Mountbatten who ordered Lionel Crabbe's final dive, whose central role threatened to engulf the royal family, a scandal that had to be concealed for a hundred years, concealed until the Queen, King Charles, and everyone close to Mountbatten would no longer be alive. Here's Mountbatten expert Andrew Lowney. He had the authority to give the instructions. He had the, the, the character to do so. And Mountbatten must have been at the centre of it as the head of the Navy. That Lionel Crabb was not fit to dive that morning, that's what Crabb expert Anne Bevan thinks. He would have still been hungover, probably even still drunk. That this was a jointly run rogue MI6 CIA operation. Here's espionage expert Michael Smith. They would have worked together. They would have been discussing it together. That the operation was planned by that risk-taking old Etonian, Nicholas Elliott. Here's Elliott expert Richard Norton Taylor. He knew all about it. Elliott was one of the who, who was giving lots of nods and winks. And our experts also agree with 97-year-old Mary Julie that Crabbe's corpse was recovered from Portsmouth Harbour, then ferried to Fort Moncton. She said for certain that it was Lionel Crabbe. And at some point, released into Chichester Harbour. Here's our hydrologist expert, Professor Carolyn Roberts. The simplest solution is the most likely one. His body was taken to Chichester Harbour and was dumped there.
So as we reach the end of the podcast, why does any of this matter? Why should we care about the fate of Lionel Buster Crab? Because it's not just the story of a broken man who was exploited, who should never have made his final fatal dive. It's also the story of a shadowy group, the Weeders, who've been concealing the truth for almost seven decades. What else could they be hiding? What other secrets in the here and now are they keeping from us? Covid cock-ups, corruption, dodgy deals and insider contracts, and far bigger issues than these. Decisions taken by those in power which went wrong, that endangered lives both here and abroad. Decisions whose impact would be felt down the generations. Decisions for which no one could ever be held accountable, because no one was ever allowed to know. The only certainty is that somewhere deep inside Whitehall, locked in a drawer, gathering dust, there's a Lionel Crab file revealing everyone implicated in this sorry affair. And until such time as those sinister weeders release that file, a file we have every right to see, we can do no more than expose the darkness at the heart of the Ministry of Secrets. That's it from Cover Up Ministry of Secrets. For a look behind the scenes, check out our bonus episode where we meet some of the characters featured in the series. Cover Up Season 1 Ministry of Secrets is a something else and Sony music entertainment production. It's hosted and written by me, Giles Milton. The producer is Sarah Peters. The junior producer is Martha Miller. The production coordinator is E.K. Egbitola. Peggy Sutton is the story consultant. Jeremy Wormsley composed the original music with mixing and sound design from Peregrine Andrews. Isis Thompson is the editor and executive producer. The series featured the voices of actors Dominic Frisby, Ginny Fiol and Peter Temple. With thanks to Tuning Fork Productions. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.